0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: The rugby, the footy, the horses, the golf, the ga. Students, whatever
2: you're a fan of, fuel your passion for sport with a little help from Vodafone X. Switch today and never miss a moment with Sky Sports Mobile TV and 20 gigs of 4G data for just €20 top-up, plus 100 minutes of calls and unlimited tax. Now that's more fuel for more fun. Search Vodafone X now. For full terms, conditions and limitations, including our fair usage policy, see vodafone.ie.
0: Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. The red shoe daringly original musical that captures all the glamour of the south of France in exquisite Technicolor. Blending compelling beauty and high drama with a love story of sheer enchantment. Assembling a cast of international stars to endow an
1: enthralling film with their rich vitality. And making the outstanding debut of this or any other year, a lovely red-headed girl graced with all the talents, Moira Shearer. to know where we are.
0: Koshy! Go! I thought once, Mr. Lermontov, that there would be no room in my life for anything but dancing. You will think so again, my dear. You're jealous of her! Yes, I am! But in the way that you will never understand. Well, Vicky? Julian, I love you. But you love that more.
3: to The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Ms. Maitland McDonough. Always a pleasure to be here. Also with us this week from a uh, undisclosed location somewhere in the heart of Poland is Mr. Daniel Bird. It's great to be back. This week we are discussing the 1948 film from Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, The Red Shoes. The film centers on the tumultuous world of dance, namely ballet. We follow Julian Craster and Vicky Page through their triumphs and misfortunes. Of course, we're going to be getting into spoilers about this 69-year-old film. So if you haven't seen The Red Shoes and don't want anything ruined for you, turn off the show, watch the movie, and come on back. We will still be here. Now, Daniel, when was the first time you saw The Red Shoes, and what did you think?
1: I saw The Red Shoes in my early teens. It was actually when I first read Maitland's book on Dario Argento. And, of course, in the chapter about Suspiria, she talks about The Red Shoes. So that was an incentive to seek out the film. At the time, it was playing a lot on television, so I just taped it. And I realized I'd seen it before. It was one of those films you'd seen uh, when you're a small kid, and you're not really aware of films and filmmakers, but it made such an impression. Yeah, so that's the, the strange way I actually saw The Red Shoes via Maitland's book.
2: I also saw it as a teenager, and I think it was one of those movies that I could not possibly have avoided, primarily because my father was a dance critic. So I grew up in a world of dance and dancers. The Red Shoes was a movie that, whether people loved it or hated it, was a movie that every dance person knew. So I saw it, I think, in a repertory theater, probably the, I don't know, maybe the 8th Street Playhouse, something like that. So I did see it on a big screen, which, which was nice, because it is a gloriously beautiful movie. But it was because of the dance world connection
3: that I first saw it. This was one of those movies that had been on my to watch list for years and years. This is one of those. If you ever see an interview with Martin Scorsese, you're going to hear about the red shoes. He loves to talk about the red shoes. And this was one of those again, 2017 is a year filled with firsts for me for this show. And I was really glad, Maitland, when you suggested that we do The Red Shoes because I had never actually sat my butt down and watched it. So I first saw this about two months ago in preparation for the show. And I have to say it is nothing like I expected. I I expected I'd only seen... The scenes from the Red Shoes Ballet that's within the film itself. I had never seen the other stuff around it. So the first time I watched it, it was a really rough watch because I just kept waiting for that moment. And the other stuff, I was just like, okay, come on, let's get through this. Where's the ballet? Which you never hear me say normally. <laughs> I'm not like, where's the dance sequence? God damn it. But in this one, it was. I was just like, okay. After I saw it a second time, I have to say I appreciated the balance between the storylines. But the first time around, it was just like, okay, I'm really excited for that dance sequence. And I have to say, once it arrived, it was glorious. And it is really the payoff for this film, at least for me. And that's one of those moments that I could watch again and again and again.
1: It's interesting having seen that dance sequence and thinking, well, it could be a whole film like that. And of course they did do a film like that the 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 tales of hoffman but in some strange way it doesn't work quite as well as the red shoes and you kind of think well actually the real interest of the film is the way in which the dance sequence works in counterpoint to the other story and the relationship between the two and i think that's really what i kind of got from that it's not a case of comparing those two elements but rather uh, their relationship is what it's all about
2: And I'll tell you, I love the film overall because it is a surprisingly accurate depiction of what the dance world is like. Clearly, it it is a drama. So things are condensed and relationships are made very clear in ways that they aren't always in real life. But being a professional dancer is a really hard life. And it's extremely competitive. And it's extremely unforgiving. And some of the things it's unforgiving about are things you can't do anything about. If you blow your knee out, that's it. It, It's as though you were a professional athlete. Your career is over. And all you can do is perhaps come back and work in a support role in the dance world. You can be a coach. Uh, You could perhaps choreograph. But frankly, again, that's not a great career in practical career terms. The the call for choreographers is relatively limited. There are lots of people who want to do it. And I think Red Shoes brings out really clearly how tough a life it is, and yet how much the people who do it love it. I mean, if they, they do it, as, as she says early on, she, she dances to live. She can't imagine not doing it.
3: I was very surprised at how we meet our characters, that we meet them at a performance, but they're members of the audience. For the most part, we were talking about Vicky and Julian, who are members of the audience at this first performance that we see. And Julian and, what would they be, his classmates, they seem... They're, they're so into the world of dance, and they're so into the minutia of everything, and just the way that we really focus more on them as part of the audience than we even do as part of this the actual performance that's going on, and to hear them talking back and forth about all of these things that are happening on stage, I was just like, okay, this is an interesting way to show us how passionate they are about this, and just the way that these performances kind of affect the community. I was very surprised at just how into these performances everybody in the audience seemed to be.
2: I actually love that opening sequence in which you see the guys who work in the theater who are going to open up the doors for the, for the students for, who have got, pretty literally gotten student rush tickets. They're really inexpensive, and their seats are way up in what in, in England they call the gods, You're right, right, right up at the top of the theater. And although you bought tickets, those seats were unassigned, which is why there's that incredible scramble running up the stairs running, jockeying for position in the seats. And then, as you said, there's that conversation that's going on. And I particularly love the girl in the, in the peasant outfit with her hair up in that Elsa Lanchester bun on top of her head and her boyfriend with the mustache and the beard and the disdain that they have for just for everybody else there, because they are the true lovers of the art. They're not these silly students from the conservatory who, for God's sake, are there to hear the music, not see the dance. It's really fantastic. It just, it shows you how factionalized audiences can be and where the status symbols lie, because they don't really have to do with money. They don't have to do with what kind of clothes you're wearing. They completely have to do with where your allegiances are and how much you know about the minutia of this thing that you love so much. I, I adore that sequence.
1: I think it works on a number of levels, though, because on the one hand, uh, there is, as you say, the drama there, but it also fits into certainly Powell's idea of a composed film. I mean, this idea that it should be a whole synthesis and uh, all the different departments working together, rather than in this particular scene, a kind of war between the music and the dance. And it kind of really kind of points the film in the direction it goes and also the way Powell and Pressburger cinema goes.
3: And we get a rather uh, interesting twist very early in the film when uh, one of the students, Julian, is listening to this performance and realizes that his own music has been used for this performance. And uh, I, I thought for sure the whole rest of the movie would hinge upon that. It's more of an entree into this world for him, but it was, uh, you know, he's basically he's being ripped off by one of his professors, and I was like, oh wow, that that's a pretty big deal, and it, it becomes a big deal for a little bit of the film, but then it quickly kind of fades once he actually is able to use that and show that he is the originator of this piece and be able to use that to to as his entree into this world.
2: Although what's great is that the entree that gets him is basically being a rehearsal pianist right. first and that's actually great because most most serious musicians really don't want to be rehearsal pianists even though they are an, an integral part of the dance world. No major classical company or I think most modern companies either Rehearse to recorded music. There's always a pianist there, so that you can start and stop because that's a big part of rehearsal. You'll do one passage over and over and over again, and whoever's taking the class or the rehearsal will just say, "Okay, stop." Give some piece of direction to the dancer, and then say, "Okay, now take it from a point before where you left off." Uh, it, that's part of, the, quite honestly, the tedium of of the dance world because. If you're an audience member alone, you really only know the dance world from what you, see. you know dance from what you see on stage. And it's extraordinary and it's precise and it is a dramatic whole that you can simply be absorbed by. But in order to get there, there is endless rehearsal, endless discussion about how you're going to costume it, how you are going to um, do, do hair even. But there is the standard ballet bun, obviously, but there are also ballets that are hair-down ballets, and that's really important. And at the City Ballet, actually, when I worked there, there were a couple of dancers who had relatively short hair, which didn't matter when their hair was up in a bun, but if they were going to do something like Walpurgisnacht, where there was a great deal of tossing heads and flying hair, they actually had to wear falls in order to get the right look. So hair and makeup was always busy there. It's all part of creating this, this astonishing illusion of effortless beauty that you see on stage. And one of the things, again, that I love about Red Shoes is that it really really does give you a look at how high the stakes are behind the scenes and how much people work and how much they sacrifice to create that illusion of floating, effortless beauty.
1: I also love about the, the lead-in to that scene is the introduction to Lemontov of about when Julian writes the letter to uh, ostensibly well, claim that he's been plagiarized by his professor and then decides to retrieve it. And then this whole game of etiquette about what is right and what's wrong and how it's implied that even though he's right that he's been plagiarized, he can't actually do something as, as kind of crass and direct as write a letter. And the way in Lomontov kind of throws him off balance and slowly kind of like picks him up and then offers him this kind of quite meager job. But nevertheless makes him feel privileged and it really does establish this kind of uh, the puppet master which uh, will actually take center stage
2: i also love the way you first see lermontov you don't even really see all of him you just see that hand behind that curtain it's just fabulous because it adds to that notion that yes he is the man behind the curtain
3: yeah lermontov is a, a fascinating character and just the way that he Comes to the center of of all of the action, and yeah, he's he's that spider at the middle of the web. But I don't really get that impression of him at first, and it takes a little while before I realize just how important he is to the rest of of all of the players. He touches everybody's lives.
1: I mean, it's the question of who inspired him on top. Of him. I mean, it's one that's often discussed, and uh, you know, the most obvious model is somebody like Diaghilev and the Ballet Russe. You know, somebody who's you know, the question, what, what what did Diaghilev do exactly? Well, you know, he, he kind of uh, forged kind of junctures, you know, and relationships between Stravinsky and, and things like this, and this idea that somebody is a great synthesizer of talents and that their medium is actual people themselves. And I think that's central to the Red Shoes.
2: You're absolutely right. And and Lermontov clearly is Diaghilev. And the the company that you're seeing is clearly based in part on the Valet Russe. Yes, you're right. That's exactly what Diaghilev's genius was. I mean, Diaghilev not, not only put people together, but he saw people and saw things in them. I mean, he saw George Balanchine when George Balanchine was, was nobody and brought him into his company. So, and, and of course he saw Nijinsky and made Nijinsky into a great dancer, not by teaching him how to dance, but by putting him in the kind of ballets that used every quality that he had to their greatest extent. I mean, Afternoon of a Fawn absolutely made the world see that Nijinsky was a genius, that he was a -a once-in-a-lifetime dancer. And not everybody could have done that.
1: The story of The Red Shoes in many ways, I mean, it originated in the thirties, originally when producer Alexander Korda wanted to do uh, A Life of Nijinsky. And, you know, the the whole process in way, the script actually evolved over a period of 10, 15 years is quite incredible. Uh, indeed, I mean, Pressburger and uh, Powell sometimes talked about Corder as a, another reference point for the character of LeMontov.
2: And again, yes, as you said, Corder was somebody who brought people together, who brought designers, who brought actors, who brought directors together, and then let them work.
3: And we haven't really talked too much about Vicki Page, who becomes... Um, our other really main character of the film, she is at this, uh, opening uh, performance with her aunt, uh, Lady Nelson. And then she, Lady Nelson manages to, um, Uh, basically turn a uh, after ballet party into an audition for Vicky. And then Vicky, I I like the way that this movie kind of runs parallel between Vicky and Julian as being um, our, our main characters. And uh, for me, obviously I'm more invested in Vicky just because um, the actress is far more charismatic to me, but um, I do appreciate that we have kind of this dual storyline going on and both of them, again, being, controlled and, and touched by uh, Lermontov.
2: Moira Shearer was an incredibly charismatic dancer and, and also an incredibly charismatic actress. And frankly, acting wasn't good for her career as a dancer because in the ballet world then, less so now, I think, we're seen as a, a cheap, common kind of entertainment. You know, the ballet was art. And so to lower yourself to make films wasn't, wasn't necessarily a good thing for your standing in the dance world. And it, it did happen to her. that She was looked upon as somebody who kind of sold out. Uh, and she spoke about it very philosophically later on in her life. But I'm sure at the time that was incredibly difficult for her because to get to where she was, which was a major dancer with the Sadler's Wells Ballet, had already been a really hard slob. Again, there's just all that hard work. There's all that working through injuries. There's all that trying to make yourself stand out when you're just a girl in the core. That's difficult unless you get the roles that will let you stand out, which means somebody has to notice you in the core. It, it can get kind of a trap. And um, Red Shoes, though, it certainly gave her a recognition in a world other than dance. Well, great for her as a dancer.
1: But she didn't want to be in the film. I mean, I think that's what's interesting about this whole uh, production mm-hmm. side of it. But the idea that... They were considering various people, and it was uh, uh, Pressburger who was adamant that she was perfect and was kind of wearing her down constantly um, until the kind of the boss of Saddle as well said, Please just, just take the job so this guy will go away. And, and then, then calmly rationalized it, saying, Well, Luke, actually, you're doing the world of ballet a service by appearing in this film because you're effectively advertising it. And then when she was reassured that having done the film, she, she could come back she could resume a career. And I think that's what's interesting, the fact that she didn't see this as a springboard for a career in acting. No, it was more like an interlude. And that was the tragedy, the fact that you know it did have an effect and she couldn't kind of easily go back in afterwards.
2: Yeah, that was the tragedy because, again, she was a dancer, first and foremost. And to to be a dancer, you have to be completely committed to it. You just, you can't do it halfway because there are so many other people who are willing to give absolutely everything to it that if you come in and say, oh, well, yeah, Okay, I'm kind of good at this dancing thing, but you know, maybe it would be fabulous to be a uh, fabulous to be a, uh, a model or fabulous to be uh, a movie star. It's it's probably not going to work for you. So yes, the fact that she did get pushed into it as an advertisement for the ballet, which it was, a lot of people I think saw this movie and at least gave a thought to ballet who might not have before. It didn't help her career as a dancer.
3: I never would have thought that she was anything but an actress just from her performance. But until you see her dance and just see how wonderfully she carries herself. And there's there's a moment in the film that really shows that dedication that you're talking about. When I see, and I'm trying to remember which dancer it is, but the way that you see these dancers and you see their bodies and their bodies are basically transformed into these machines in order to do this dancing and just to see the amount of physical perfection that has to go into just the shapes of them, the musculature and all of that. It's just amazing to watch and and look at how differently formed they are versus, uh, you know, quote unquote normal human being because of all the dedication that they have to put into it.
2: Well, another one of the harshnesses of ballet, however, is that if you don't have the right kind of body, it doesn't matter how hard you work, you will get mad at some point and you will not be a dancer in a ballet company, for example, because if you don't have a certain length of legs. although it's interesting looking at this movie to see that Balanchine really did reshape the notion of what classical dancers looked like. And he favored girls with very long legs and short waists and long arms. And you can see there are a lot of dancers in this movie who don't conform to that, who who would never have found their way into a Balanchine company. And Balanchine's aesthetic then spread out, certainly to pretty much all American dance companies. I mean, he referred to his favorite dancers as long-stemmed American roses. That's what he wanted. And now that has become very much the norm in American ballet, for sure. But also in Russian ballet, actually, Russian dancers, dancers didn't look the way they look now. 50 years ago, and you can see it in films of them. But she had that body. Maurice Scherer had that perfect balancing body. He would have loved her if she had auditions for City Ballet, which she couldn't have when this movie was made because it didn't exist.
1: It's difficult to imagine the film without her, though. I mean, during the period when she was considering the role, I know that Powell was actually uh, quite serious about the idea of actually using a composite of a dancer- and actress, uh, purely out of frustration that she wouldn't commit to the role. But I just can't imagine the film without her. I, I mean, from, a, from an aesthetic point of view, the fact that, you know, you see there's no kind of montage of someone else's legs or, you know, it, it's just so much of the film really depends on the spectacle of seeing her dance in, a, in an incredible fashion.
2: And again, you can see that one of the reasons she was so desirable for this role, because she, she was an incredible dancer. And she could also act, although uh, there must have been a certain leap of faith there because she didn't have an acting background. But she has to have shown that when they were looking at her at various times through the film. I and mean, It's a terrific performance. You no, know, you, you can't look at that and say, well, that's a good performance for somebody who's not an actress. It's a really, really good performance.
1: It's also interesting how she evaluated her performance and also the dance. I mean, uh, there's lots of, on many occasions, she used to say that it was really frustrating all the stopping and starting which was necessary in terms of making films. It wasn't just a case of filming a dance. And after 15 seconds, just as she was kind of getting ready, it was cut and let's do another take. And in fact, when she was watching the film, uh, she she saw it as like a massacre of not just her performance, but the whole dancer's performance. She, the idea that you, you're, you're kind of editing all of these individual sequences together. So it it really is interesting how negative perception of both making the film and how she evaluated the actual dance on screen was when you actually look at the finished result.
2: again having worked with dancers for a long time dancers are incredibly relentlessly critical of themselves and everything they do so i think that that is probably a part of what you heard there from her and i think maybe she mellowed later in life because she wasn't dancer anymore and she was able to look at it slightly differently and see that actually something really great was happening up there on screen. It's just not what she thought it was going to be when she was doing it.
1: I think that's true, and I think it's also reflected, and I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but she did go on to work with Powell on at least two subsequent occasions.
3: I want to talk about the character of Livingston Montague, who's... uh lovingly known as Livy, who is the uh, conductor of the orchestra, and just that tension that is there between Livy and Julian. And uh, some of those scenes between those two are uh, pretty great, especially the whole thing where Julian had brought in the orchestra early to rehearse them and then notes there's an error in the score. That scene, it's one of those uncomfortable moments that um, really sticks out for me as far as being a, a great moment in the film.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He's just an incredible character actor, which who appeared in a number of um, Paul and Pressburger films, Esmond Knight. Uh, but I think those scenes you're talking about, they really, really draw attention to the kind of the, the pecking order and the authority and the fact that really there's no question again, as was the case with Lemontov even if he's right, has he got? Has he got the right to actually ask these things off the the kind of the orchestra? And uh, I mean, that's really the scene when he actually invites them in early, and then he just kind of naively gets told and pointed out, that, you know, who, who's paying for them and everything else. It's uh, money's no question for Julian at that point in his career. It's uh, it's all about the music, which of course mirrors uh, Vicky's ambitions. And if actually actually says that during the rehearsals, it's nothing but the music.
2: And, and you're right. Basically, what it is all about is it's all about the pecking order. Basically, it's the same as the pecking order in an office. You know, if your boss is doing some, th- something wrong, it might behoove you not to say so, because you're not in charge here. But in this case, he, he can't help himself, because for him, as you said, it's all about the music. And it has to be absolutely right. It has to be the music that he heard in his head when he began composing, or else it's a betrayal of what he's what he's been doing. He is, as you said said, as committed to music as Vicky is to dance. And it has to be absolutely right. And it doesn't matter who you tell or piss off
1: to get it to be right. But I never got the impression in in that scene, that kind of altercation though there's nothing really kind of malevolent about it. He's more making fun in front of the orchestra of the naivety of the young composer. It's it is it's there's it's, it's it's a joke about his innocence in terms of understanding how these things work. There's never any sense well I didn't see any sense that he wanted uh, to really uh, to be cruel or to bully him as such and I think that's, you know, it, that is an interesting thing about the film and its age and its time I mean it's not, uh, it's and again as a film we'll talk about later but it's not Black Swan in terms of it, the maliciousness of the, the backstabbing and competition.
2: I think you're right it's not malicious but it is patronizing in a really big way. It's, oh, silly boy. And w- when you're young, that's the, the kind of thing that will send you into a full-seeing red rage to feel that you're being treated as though, well, you're just a kid and you don't understand that this is the way things are done.
3: And we have that, speaking of pecking order and speaking of the the whole um, uh, the hierarchy of the ballet we have the prima ballerina, uh, Irina Borskaya, leave the ballet. Uh, she's getting married, and of course, uh, Lermatov is not happy about that at all. But then that's what opens up that area so that Vicky can move up into it. I was kind of reminded, you know, luckily there was no uh, vicious pushing down a, uh, <laughs> down the stairs or anything. But of course, I'm reminded of like showgirls and just that way that, you know, the, the main Dancer moves out, and then the understudy is able to come in and take over that role, and then really prove herself. I know that comes more from like you know Forty um, Second Street or Gold Diggers from nineteen thirty three or something, rather than just showgirls. But that's my reference point.
1: But it also draws attention to another theme in the film, and that is the conflict between or or the conflict of the relationship rather between life and art, and uh, the way that basically Vicky's been given this choice. You know, dance is everything. Or get married. And, and you know, so immediately that possible choice is laid out for her in that particular plot point. Uh, and, you know, the disdain which Lermontov kind of uh, the way in which he doesn't, he just disappears uh, and that absence in that scene uh, when he's not around to actually enjoy the news that she's getting married. Uh, it says it all, certainly to Vicky.
2: Well, and it also comes back to the thing that Lermontov says very early in the film about what what dance is to him. It's his religion. And, you know, he doesn't want to see his religion being practiced in a drawing room. There's a kind of uh, monastic dedication that's being asked of these dancers that they not have private lives because that gets in the way of your being a great dancer. And if you want to get married, you're going to leave the company and be a married lady. And maybe you'll see the error of your ways and come back after six months because you realize you're bored making dinner and going to parties with your husband because it's not giving you the kind of fulfillment that you get from being a, a disciple of the arts. That's an attitude that sounds like a joke, but it's not. And again, I worked in the ballet world for 15 years. It, it, it really it very much still is there. The dance world is more reasonable now, I think, than it was then, and does allow a little bit more for the fact that people do have lives. Women have children. I mean, that used to be the kiss of death for dancers. If you said that you wanted to have a child, it was pretty much a fait that you were never coming back. And part of that is a physical thing because having a child is very rough on your body and your body is your instrument as a dancer. But the fact is, it is possible to have children and come back and dance. But for a long time, the idea idea was there that if you wanted children, then you were choosing to have children and you were not going to be a dancer anymore. You weren't going to come back to whatever company you were
1: dancing with. But it is really a love triangle between LeMontov and Julian and Vicky and the fact that that it is a contrast between sexual possession and possession, and in a more general sense, the way that Lamontov, he doesn't reveal any kind of romantic feelings towards Vicky, but he does want to possess it, nevertheless, and the idea that uh, a relationship could in any way detract from the power or dedication she has, this is, you know, this is totally unacceptable. It's, it's, It's all or nothing. I mean, it's phrased that she's committing herself to to ballet and to dance. But it's really, it's about her dedication to him and, you know, a part of his theater.
2: But as you said, it's not about him wanting a personal relationship with her. It's about him wanting to see her commit to the art that he is also committed to.
3: And it's really through this triangle that we move more into this whole idea of the titular Red Shoes, the whole idea of the uh, Hans Christian Andersen story that they decide that they're going to adapt for this ballet, and it's going to be Vicky now as our lead, and it's going to be Julian doing the music, and then Lermontov behind the scenes pulling all those strings, as we talked about.
2: I also have to say, I love that story. Hans Christian Andersen is really kind of a terrific, was kind of a terrific writer, because his imagination was really a a very bloody one. And, you know, the story of the Red Shoes is an absolutely perfect one. Yes, she gets these fabulous shoes and, the, and they dance her to death. That's great. That's a great story for kids.
1: I mean, Maitland, uh, I mean, you, you touched upon certainly in your book on Argento talking about fairy tales and how you receive fairy tales and their kind of mythological kind of roots uh, being not quite so innocent. And I think you used the example of another uh, Anderson story, the, the Little Mermaid, and about the, the sexual qualities of the original. And how they're completely obliterated from the Disney cartoon. And I think that's very much true of the red shoes. I mean, there is a, a strong mythological, even sexual connotation to those dancing red shoes.
2: I actually, um, the Little Mermaid is a great story to bring up because the price she has to pay in order to be able to have legs and walk on land and marry her prince is that whenever she puts her feet down, it's as though she's walking on knives. I'll tell you, point shoes are cruel. <laughs> So there, there, there's a very good comparison that Point shoes are painful. Point shoes, point shoes deform your feet in a really major way. All dancers, all classical ballet female dancers have ugly feet, and they are the first to tell you. You often lose some of your toenails because of the repetitive pounding on them. You almost always have bunions. It, they have ugly feet, and that's, that's the price you pay for the illusion of floating that point shoes give you once you're up on point, you don't walk like a person anymore. You look like something half human, half some kind of spirit.
3: Yeah, it always reminds me of, like, Chinese foot binding, and just the way that uh, that was seen as being desirable, but yet also very cruel.
1: Yeah, are absolutely the cruel shoes. No two ends of that. There's also that, I mean, there's that scene, I mean, particularly well, towards the end of the film, in which Lemontov's kind of going a bit mad as he's losing his grip over Becky and he's got that that sculpture of a a pointed foot and he's sort of, it's like, you know, caressing it and it's just so, it's such a perverse scene which kind of draws attention to this kind of completely sadomasochistic element of of, of what he's doing and what, what for him the ballet's about. It's completely strange and brilliant, that scene.
2: It is, it's very fetishistic and that is exactly what it is.
3: I'm glad you brought up the whole idea of the original intentions of um, the Little Mermaid and the original, you know, going back to fairy tales. You know, we had a whole series of shows on the projection booth last year where we talked about fairy tales, and I remember reading from – the end of Sleeping Beauty. The story, as we know it, is basically the prince awakens her with a kiss, and then that's it. But there's a whole other part to that story where basically it's the you know the, there's a woman I believe that she ends up being uh, cooked and eaten. So there there are many many great dark turns for these fairy tales. We have the Disney versions that we look at now, and looking at the original stuff, it's like. Oh yeah, there's, there's a whole world out there. So I was glad that the red shoes made me go look up the Hans Christian Andersen story to see what the, the real story of this was and yeah it's one of those wonderful you get what you want and then it's going to destroy you and that is brought out so wonderfully so we, I, we really we have to talk about the dance sequence in this movie because like i said that was the only thing i knew from this movie going into it and that was the moment i was waiting for and i have to say i was not disappointed at all this sequence of the ballet The whole rest of the film kind of drops away, and we enter into this. It feels like 20 minutes, but I know it's a lot shorter. I think it's maybe 10, 15-minute sequence, but it is the heart of the film for me, and it is just so transformative and so great to see. And this is one of those moments where I'm like, I wish that I was watching this on the big screen. I really felt terrible seeing this on a television because just the way that the colors looked... And just the way that the the backgrounds are, I, there were so many things where I just wish that I was able to, you know, put myself into that that screen. I had heard. Uh, scorsese yesterday talking about um, how he had seen it on a nitrate print and i can't even imagine how uh, that must have affected him because uh, like i said you can't go with too many conversations without him bringing up the red shoes and there's a reason for that and there's a reason why he's so captivated by it i think brian de palma said that he owes a lot of his career to the red shoes as well this movie has affected a lot of filmmakers because it is so affecting
1: I was lucky enough to see a nitrate print at the what was then the the NFT. It's now the BFI South Bank. About fifteen, sixteen years ago, they had a see, uh, uh, a kind of season of films, and I saw it again almost immediately after, or uh, at the Kaliwivary Festival. They were they were screening it. I'm not sure. I mean, certainly certainly in Poland, uh, Powell and Pressburger are still an unknown quantity. And, and I think the screening Kali Vivari in the Czech Republic, it was kind of quite new to a lot of people. And during that sequence, whole rows of people, half of them were kind of applauding, uh, clapping, and the, the, the other half were actually pulling out cameras and just photographing the screen directly. It was incredible. You know, it was an incredible experience, but also to actually witness the effect of that sequence on people who were unprepared for it. And I th- think in hindsight i mean the way i look back at that sequence it's a strange comparison but i always think of the stargate in 2001 and they just literally time and space just drop out of the narrative you know it, it just kind of we, we stop the conventional story now and then we just go somewhere completely different we also punch through that kind of uh, notion of uh, reality which is established in the story and go into you know some purely abstract sequences It is jaw-dropping, and it's still one of those pieces of film I never grow tired of going back to.
2: It is essentially a piece of theatre. I mean, there's a little bit in it that you could only do in a movie. But it is essentially just a piece of theatre committed to film, and yet, as you said, it is completely jaw-droppingly absorbing. It's just breathtaking. In a way that the other ballet, actually, that you see at some length in this film, which is Giselle, is not. Although Giselle is also a very canny choice because if you know the story of Giselle, it's about a, a young girl, a young peasant girl who falls in love with a nobleman who says he's going to marry her. But of course he's not going to marry her because he's going to marry some princess. And so she kills herself. The big sequence in that is what they call the kingdom of the shade sequence in which he goes to the where she's buried. And the stage is gradually filled with young women in white, gauzy tutus where the, they're all the spirits of girls who killed themselves because their lovers abandoned them and they're going to dance it to death. it's it's really really hard and marvelous but still on in in the red shoes does not hold a candle to the red shoes ballet at all
1: it's also interesting the other uh ballad, i mean we also see swan lake and uh, the way it's almost constructed aesthetically is that total opposite to the red shoe sequence in the way that it's in a small theatre uh, and, and the sound doesn't come from an orchestra it comes from like a kind of gramophone which which you hear the, the scratch uh, and that of course affects the rhythm of the dance and everything else you know, it's, it's almost, this is such a compromise in terms of her getting the job and we're constantly reminded of the limitations but in the red shoe sequence you, you just kind of, none of those limitations exist and you're just kind of punched into this kind of uh, sublime world of uh, perfection, I even those sequences which are totally pure special effects, like the bit when she's falling and uh, the sequences with Robert Hellman when he's turning in and out of a newspaper and he's speeding up and slowing down it is incredible how it is on the one hand a record of a performance but at the same time, pure cinema
3: I was really reminded of the uh, gotta dance sequence from singing in the rain while I was watching this. I mean, that was more my touchstone having grown up seeing singing in the rain and just the way that the rest of the film kind of drops out as you're watching that. Now there is uh there's definitely, it speaks to the rest of the film a little bit insofar as we're seeing a little bit more of Gene Kelly and the way that he, uh, you know, it's almost like an imagined past of him going to New York and trying out and uh, being successful and all these things. But just that moment of, you know, just how wild that sequence is and just how cinematic that sequence is and just how it's interesting because it's stage bound and cinematic at the same time, seeing those things like the, uh, uh, the, the moving walkway and using that to propel him along in the way that he goes backwards and forwards on that moving walkway, the way that sets will move out of the way and the way that new things will be introduced into that whole sequence. And just that I always love the whole thing of him, you know, it, like, OK, here's how the sequence is when he starts the conversation. And then at the end, when the uh, studio exec is like, well, I can't really picture it, but I'm sure it'll look great. You know, it's, it's wonderful just the, just the way that everything moves out of the way for that moment and for that that whole sequence for Gene Kelly to just shine. And that for me is what this sequence is as well. But even going farther than that, and and obviously being a much more, I would say a European take to that than what we got in a, I would say mainstream Hollywood movie with singing in the rain. This goes far beyond that and becomes this abstract, almost experimental piece for a while. And yes, to your point, Daniel is just pure cinema, it is so great to see and just the i i once i was done with that sequence i rewound it and i watched it all over again and i can see filmmakers just pouring over that and trying to you know glean as much as they can from how they put that thing together
1: i think one of the things which really worth mentioning about that sequence is just it's quite how disturbing and quite scary the middle section is i mean it starts with this kind of carnivalesque uh, you know, very overtly fairy tale depiction, uh, but the middle sequence when you know it, it gets quite uh, very erotic, very strange, very surrealistic, and very primal. All those kind of throngs of dancers and things grappling and grasping her. I mean, it really is quite a, it's quite bold and suggestive.
2: Well, I think in particular in particular the use of carnival elements elements in it is it, really terrifying. You know, when you see the sort of uh, face face paint that looks like a skeleton. And when you see this carnival where people are dancing and having fun, but yes, there is something frantic to it as well as something erotic. It's as though they're really trying to lose themselves, which of course can be a good thing to lose yourself in something that is larger than you or that's different from you. But here it's kind of a terrifying thing. And at the beginning, of course, she's just dancing through it blithely because now she's got the red shoes and she's got a spotlight on her. So she looks very white with that flaming red hair and those flaming red shoes. and But you can see from what's going on around her that it's not going to end well, even if you happen not to know how it ends before you see it, you can see that she's being drawn into something that is frantic and that she's going to be buried in. Essentially.
1: It's necessary to mention, I think uh, the role of uh, Hein Heckroth in terms of the conception of that scene, because of course, Alfred Younger was the production designer for many of those early uh, Archer's films, uh, Black Narcissus most famously, and everybody remarking about how they built this all on the set. It was a point in the career when when Younger wanted equal credit, and Paul and Prescott didn't give him that credit. Instead, they took somebody in his department, uh, the guy doing the costumes, and then asked him to actually do the sequence. But it is interesting how they asked somebody with no production design background to put uh, a background in painting and costume to kind of conceive and design the sequence and you know it was really kind of I think a, a huge risk but one which paid off massively this uh, you know painter's fantasia
3: the guy who plays the actual shoe salesman uh, the, the, who I would say basically is some form of the devil it's how I kind of uh, picture this guy uh, Leonid Massine. Wow. Just his performance and again, the makeup on him, the wild hair and just that kind of impish glee that he brings to the role. He was so fascinating as well. I mean, every everything fires on all cylinders during that sequence. But he is one of those things that I'm just like, I want to see more of this guy. And I was so happy every time he was on screen because he just brought such a magic to that performance.
2: Well, and that is, of course, because he was a dancer, although by the time film was late, he was older. But he, he was somebody who had a lifetime of being on stage and creating characters with no with no language, creating them purely with the way you move your body, with the way you cook your fingers. His, his hands are really fabulous in this sequence. It, it is a completely wordless and yet fully formed performance. I mean, even the early part, which is kind of funny, where he's sitting and making the shoes and he's just. He's filled with glee, but even there, it looks as though it's a faintly devilish glee, as you said. As though he somehow he does know that, yes, those shoes have a great power to create something beautiful, but there's a great danger that comes
1: with them. Isn't he credited as kind of choreographing that scene himself?
2: Yes, yeah, and you can see that it is perfectly suited to him because he was working on his own body and it was within its fairly serious limitations at that point.
3: I think it was Messine's body that I was actually commenting on earlier when we see him in a rehearsal studio and just to see the way that his body, that it was so transformed. And that was the the moment where I was just like, wow, this guy is a serious dancer. Just to see the shape of him compared to another person was just amazing.
1: Well, it's experience. I mean, because Robert Helpman was also a dancer, but he was a much younger dancer. And there was apparently much tension on the set between Robert Helpman being quite young and Massine being much older.
2: Yeah, it's kind of like the the young hot actor in town and the older actor who knows the rest of his career is character parts. And that's just all there is to
3: it. I was disappointed that the rest of the movie wasn't just this dance sequence. I almost hoped that the rest of it would be. So when we went back to reality after that, when we went back to the rest of the story, then of course, you know, even as I'm watching it, I'm trying to kind of pull it apart and see how this story relates to the rest of the story. And of course, we have this Faustian uh, deal and we have this uh this impish character and I was just like, okay, well, is that Lermontov is is the uh, you know it's this character representative of Julian and just so trying to make that fit into the rest of the narrative which I think that it can it just takes a little bit of of doing to do but I I think it was very clever to use that particular ballet that particular story as this because we do see kind of the rest of the film play out the rise and well we've already seen the rise but kind of play out maybe a little bit of the fall of vicky Well, you've got that great
1: scene as well with in the dance when you've got the silhouette of the shoemaker and then in tune in time with the music it cuts several times to the silhouette of Lemontov as the kind of the 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 puppet master conductor and then also to julian so it, it's sort of within there and you get the impression also given the paint expression on her face that it is some sort of moment of madness for her there is the tension of the story of this triangle within the ballet itself and I I don't see those two elements as I said at the beginning as separate things it's interesting just the other week it was a discussion about uh, whether or not to go and see La La Land and then the response was uh, I hate musicals and then the response well you liked all that jazz ah but that's different and I think Red Shoes like all that jazz they are essentially musicals, but they're musicals which don't get treated as musicals. Uh, you know, the form, it doesn't have that kind of uh, clearly delineated kind of uh, uh, number action, number action. It does blur, and it does work seamlessly, and I think, you know, it really is the fulcrum for the whole film, this sequence.
2: A lot of the way it's designed is very Cocteau-esque. It reminds me of Beauty and the Beast in several places, in that there is always, always a sense of menace that is completely melded with the beauty of it. You know, there's, there's some of the uh, the set design is very sort of warped and twisted as though it's melted a little bit. I don't know, by the heat of the, of, of the artistic passion that's going on around it, perhaps. And there are those figures who really are like something out of a, a grotesque nightmare. And particularly the way they move en masse as though they're one organic thing that just happens to have a lot of pieces. It is very much the story of the movie overall just encapsulated in this in this dance, which I think is a really audacious thing for Powell to have done because lots of people, as he said, say, oh, I hate musicals or even more, oh, I hate ballet. Why would I want to see a movie about ballet? So he makes a movie about ballet with a great drama in it and then sticks a great big ballet in it. I don't think people walked out on it, frankly. I think by the time The Red Shoes Ballet actually comes on, people are primed by everything that they've seen before to absolutely sit and watch it and pay attention to it in a way that they might not have had it come earlier or had they just turned on the television and seen oh there's going to be you know i I turned on channel 13 and they're going to be showing uh, a ballet i'll watch it you know many people won't do that because they're afraid that it's going to be boring and it's not it's not going to work up work for them as a story, but the Red Shoes Ballet absolutely does.
1: If it is an art film, it's it's an art film in a pure sense, but it's also a very popular film. And I think I mean you talk about the you know the visual quality, I mean Hackroth is very, you know, very clearly drawing on a tradition of like Dali in particular. I mean those sequences with the 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 the, 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 the naked figures behind the curtains handing holding the candelabras and things. You know, it, it's almost like a pastiche verging on the kitsch. And you know, I don't see that as necessarily a bad thing because basically, it's just—it's not not so much in bad taste. It's it's basically taking things, you know, from kind of uh you know high, modern art and things like this, but putting it in a in a, in a context where you don't notice. You're not—it's not putting it on a pedestal. This is just scenography for a a slightly mad ballet. And I think that's what's so ingenious about the film. It is avant-garde. The the approach to montage, the construction of the film. Is as innovative, uh, and in many ways, I think better than a lot of what Eisenstein was doing, particularly in the the 30s and 40s, with films like Ivan the Terrible. Uh, and I mean, you could draw a parallel between the, the kind of the color dance at the end of Part Two of Ivan the Terrible and the Red Shoes sequence. But you know, it is incredibly, you know, innovative, uh, adventurous. It, it's, but at the same time, you never get the feeling that you're watching something which is uh, an avant-garde film. <laughs>
2: Nor do you get the feeling that you're watching something that's good for you, which I think is a thing that puts a lot of people off classical dance. They think it's, a, it's something you would go to see because it's good for you. It'll make you a, a more refined person. The Red Shoes Ballet is not something that makes you a more refined person. It is a huge melodrama that is completely gripping and engrossing and, and very perverse. I mean, the moment in which the shoes are taken off her dead feet by the priest, it's just great, frankly.
3: And of course, the way that that's echoed at the end of the film is is wonderful as well. So um, I'm glad I gave spoiler warning at there at the beginning.
1: <laughs> oh, it, it is interesting that sequence because it was that sequence and they, those shots with her legs under the train and the blood on the on the white stockings that that those were the sequences that really created the problems and it was deemed a violent film and that was a, a scene which was not only violent but. Executed by Powell and Pressburger in terrible taste, and that's how the film was perceived. This they were, they were perceived as people who had bad taste, and I think that really does account for this kind of void in which these films, kind of uh, certainly in England until uh, the late 60s and early 70s, kind of resided. It was just seen as bad taste and kitchen and over the top.
3: Well, we talked on the Peeping Tom episode about how reviled Peeping Tom was when it came out, and yet now that is heralded or should be heralded more as a classic.
2: But oh, my God, the reviews Peeping Tom got were terrifying. I mean, there was that, oh, that yeah. it should be shoveled up and put down in the nearest sewer. Um, and from what you were saying, Dan, there was some of that the way this film was received in England as well.
1: Uh, I, I mean, certainly the case. I mean, this was the 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 films themselves. I mean they really did kind of disappear into this void and and there were a number of people who I think were instrumental, particularly in England. Uh, There was uh, Ian Christie who of course was associated with Scorsese and also uh, an incredible Eisenstein uh, scholar who was both friends with Powell and Pressburger, but really did champion these films in this kind of dark period in which they were just out of fashion. Uh, There were a number of critics, uh, Raymond Dernier, who's a really, really interesting Interesting critic. Uh, he was writing uh, uh, championing uh, Powell's... He was particularly interested in Powell and Peeping Tom in a time when people were not really championing Beeping Tom, writing reviews of the films under a fake name O.O. Green, another guy called Kevin Yates, but really at this time, they were really kind of going against the grain. They were seen as bad taste, kitschy, the colours are too much, and when you look at it historically, from, from my point of view, this is the the opposite to what you kind of associate English cinema, there's like two Ken's for me, there's Ken Loach and Ken Russell and Ken Russell always cites Powell and Pressburger as this kind of counterpoint, this romantic this fantastic aspect of English cinema. When I first saw Peeping Tom, it was Ken Russell doing the introduction on TV it was, uh, so it really is this kind of uh, counterpoint to English cinema and the way that we perceive English cinema, this fantastic cinema of Derek Jarman, Ken Russell, I think you can always trace it back to and Pressburger.
0: And of course,
2: Russell was accused of making films in terrible taste, even when he was making films about, say, Tchaikovsky, because somehow he was not treating Tchaikovsky in a reverential way. He was bringing his Ken Russell sensibility that's very much a passionate sensibility that completely goes with Tchaikovsky's music. And yet, you know, Music Lovers was treated as, as a terrible film.
1: Don't you think that the the, the, the so that sequence at the end of Savage Messiah in the vorticist Club, which is, it's almost like an homage to a kind of uh, a Powell and Pressburger kind of dance sequence, uh, you know? I and mean, it's certainly, I think that it is an interesting the the association of somebody like Ken Russell and the way the way his career both developed and the way, as you say, he was perceived and how that has changed over time. It's only now, really, I would say, in the last ten years, that Ken Russell. It's been taken seriously. I mean, certainly growing up, for me, it was just a almost a joke of bad taste.
2: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You know, I had never thought of, uh, of it quite that way before this conversation, but yes.
1: And, of course, you have Jarman as, as an intermediary figure. I mean, and the role in which Jarman was actually bringing this kind of fine arts background into not just set design, but defiantly... Unrealistic or hyper realistic in the case of the devils or the boyfriend or savage messiah. And uh, and you also have people um, like uh, Julian Temple, I mean, who's he, always been a big champion of uh, O Rosalinda, uh, which features uh, Ludmilla Chirino, the, the, the one of the dancers in the red shoes. You know, it's also another one of these after Tales of Hoffman, is this kind of operatic paul and pressburger cinema so i think that there is this other aspect to english cinema and 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 it really does go back this romantic uh kind of uh, slightly hysterical which is completely opposite of the step upper lip which we associate with england and it is a hysterical film
3: oh yeah definitely and especially it seems like the dance sequence kind of opens it up more to that it almost feels like it allows the melodrama to kick into high gear because the rest of the film really takes on a much more at least to me a much more melodramatic tone especially the whole thing of you know lermontov uh, firing uh, julian this is where he really wants to possess vicky the whole thing of she can dance other things uh but she cannot dance the red shoes i mean that seems like this kind of weird um you know almost fairy tale thing where you know you can you can do everything but you can't do this one thing, you know, it's almost like the apple in the garden. So you, you can do anything else that you want, but you can't take of the, the fruit, you know, in this case, you cannot put on those red shoes again. And for me, the rest of the film really is much more in a, a, a skewed towards melodrama vein.
2: Although again, the seeds of it are there from the very beginning. It's just boosting to flower at the end. in full flower. I mean, that scene where he gives her the talking to, it's just fantastic, especially because she's sitting down for most of it and he's standing opposite her. So there's something very formal about the construction of it. There's something very silent about their bodies. And yet she is being given the worst news she could possibly be given. I mean, even his office is theatrical with that gigantic half moon window in the back of it. Everything he does is on a stage, even when he's nowhere near a stage.
3: Just that he smashes a mirror, you know, smashes his own image in a mirror. I mean, whenever a character does that, you're just like, OK, yeah, the things just went up to 11 for this moment.
2: Absolutely. There is nothing with a broken mirror to take it up to 11.
3: I love the
1: scene at the, the very end when, when, when Julian goes away uh, and he's, he's comforting her in that really kind of... Uh, Threatening, threatening way when he's saying there, there, Vicky and then he's using his hand to gesture for the, uh, the kind of the, you know, the stage hand to go away and leave them alone and it's just so it's, it, you know, it's funny but it's at the same time it's so really disturbing that, the way in which he's kind of orchestrating and giving emotion at the same time It's completely artificial
2: I also love the way Coppelia is used later in the film because Coppelia which is one of the tales of Hoffman also Coppelia is a ballet about a woman as a puppet and that's what she is being turned into, Into, but she's resisting it with all her being. And it's just a great use of a ballet, particularly if you're a person who knows ballet. You know, Capella is a warhorse. Every company does Capella. Everybody has seen Capella a hundred times. But to use it in that specific context is very, very pointed, I think, and very effective.
1: Of course, you have that. Well, the beginning of Tales of Hoffman, when he returns to this particular story, but it's always struck me at the end of that episode when when Moirashira she gets smashed and the implication that the kind of the okay, we, we know we know she's a you know, a construction uh, as in the Sandman story. But that's always struck me as one of the most violent scenes in cinema, probably more shocking and violent than anything in Peeping Ton. And the way that it's actually presented as a kind of light ballet, but the way in which her kind of head and her limbs are snatched off, it really does kind of draw attention to this really sadistic and kind of quite dark aspect of Powell as a director, uh, and brilliant, of course.
2: Well, I completely agree. It's not possible to see the destruction of the darling Coppelia in Tales apartment as anything other than an act of murder. It's absolutely horrifying
3: of course the red shoes does return and that's the moment where the it feels like the magical realism of the of the uh, uh, ballet bleeds into our reality as far as once she puts on those shoes again it seems like the whole world goes mad
1: yeah i completely agree well just it like a, it's a her signature piece and i think it is interesting how you know it is true and it's in the way that filmmakers and also dancers and artists get associated with a particular artwork in her case it is the red shoes that is her defining performance but it's also a performance which comes to possess her and uh, you know in the way that you know it's no different from say i don't know on a much more crude level, it's like Ridley Scott having to come back to Blade Runner and Alien, you know. You can't shake up these films. They're millstones and that those, you know, is that at the end of a career, you look back and those are the films which defined you, and I think that is the role which defined Vicky as a dancer. That is her destiny to play that part.
2: From milestone to millstone, yes.
3: Alright, we're going to take a break and we'll be back after these brief messages. <laughs> I'm Jeff Sandwich. You might not know me, barely anyone does, except my mother and her Cocker Spaniel, Alan. But I have listened to every single movie podcast that has ever been made. I don't get out much, and sometimes I have to make toilet in a bottle. (laughs) What did he just say, Marjorie? However, having completed this exhaustive research, it is my assertion that the After Movie Diner podcast, with its heady mix of comedy, movie banter, fandom, passion, beards, music, and voluminous thighs, is in fact the greatest movie podcast available anywhere even holland find the after movie diner podcast on blog talk radio itunes stitcher and aftermoviediner.com now where's that bottle how to continue a television series after a major actor has left the cast part four the robin of sherwood method remove the character from the scripts and replace him with an entirely
1: similar character Create a highly elaborate scenario that puts the new character into the same
3: situation as the original. (laughs) The transition is completed when the replacement character adopts the same name as his predecessor. For more about British science fiction television, listen to the British Invaders podcast at www.britishinvaders.com.
0: Hey, projection booth listeners, I'm Chris Stashew, a writer, and I'm Sean Liang, an actor. And we are the hosts of The Culture Cast. Twice a week, Sean and I sit down and talk movies new and old, often centered around monthly genres. We also talk with people who were involved in the films themselves, like Jack Black, Doug Jones, and my favorite was Adam Green. (laughs) Our guests truly span the gamut of film. We also have weekly guest co-hosts, including the host of the podcast you're listening to now, Mike White. He uh, has joined us on some of our cinematic adventures and follies, including when we talked about the John Cusack classic 2012 so if you're looking to fill the time between projection booth podcasts with more film musings then check out the culture cast that's culture with a k on any podcast apps itunes or over at culture shop.com slash
1: culture cast
3: this is adam spiegelman from the cult movie podcast proudly resents and you listen to my favorite movie podcast the projection booth
0: i know it's messed up right
3: We are back and we are discussing the Red Shoes. When you saw this, Maitland, where were you at when it came to your relationship with the dance world?
2: I was a teenager, so I I was not as deeply immersed in the dance world as I would be later when I actually worked there. But it was certainly a world with which I was familiar through my father. I went to dance performances with him. Uh, I knew dancers. We had dancers come over to our apartment for parties. The milieu was certainly not unfamiliar to me, but nowhere near as familiar as it became later.
3: How is it seeing The Red Shoes as a teenager? I mean, this like I was saying beforehand, this is a, a very melodramatic film. And as a teen, it seems like you would be, I don't want to say more susceptible to it, but maybe more open to it than you know, me seeing it as a, as a cynical 40-year-old.
2: Actually, I think in a way I was less susceptible to it because it seemed kind of overwrought to me. And the colors did seem awfully bright to me. It was as I grew older that the pure potency of it became greater because I no longer had that kind of teenage blase like, ah, this is so overwrought. Oh, this is, it verges on the silly. Now I think I can surrender myself to it in a way that I probably couldn't then because, you know, isn't every teenager a cynic?
1: And some don't grow out of that cynicism.
2: Indeed, some do not. Some people realize at a certain point that being a cynic is actually being, being foolish, because you close yourself off to so many things. But uh, I think all teens... Maybe because the world is overwhelming when you're a teenager, you need to put up some armor. Maybe that's what it
1: is. I, I always found the film, it was a breath of fresh air, because, you know, and I think that it was... The, the lack of cynicism was, in fact, a, a form of rebellion, let's say. You know, certainly for my generation growing up, to actually see something... Um, I mean, because there is something, I won't say it's certainly not quaint, but it, it it is, and it's it's not quaint, it's not naive, but there is a certain charm, and, and it's really the theme of a film like The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, uh, of this kind of uh, slightly, uh, a, a world of lost values, and I, I think those values are very much in Palin Pressburger's film, but as you say, it is the opposite of cynicism.
3: Well, I really appreciated just how sincere it was, and just how it didn't seem like it was painting a false world. I mean, even though it is create, it's funny because it is creating the ultimate false world with this whole red shoes sequence, but it feels like it is being very pointed in its message. It's being very pointed with the violence at the end with that. I know you're using the word overwrought negatively before, but for me, the overwroughtness of the film works as a positive because it's just like, oh, wow, this, they are really wearing their emotions on their sleeve. And I uh, really appreciated that as the film went on, it didn't, didn't feel false. It felt like these were very real emotions that were coming through. And I was really so surprised to see the way that they put this movie together. Like I said earlier, I just remember, I just knew of the dance sequence. I didn't know of all the rest of it. So to see it all put together it really made a whole lot of sense and it really felt like such a great whole piece.
1: It is a film both, uh, literally and figuratively, you know, painted in bold colors. And I think sometimes people have a problem dealing with that, uh, as somebody who's written a lot about Andy Swarovski's films, the idea that, you know, when you actually have, uh, very, um, direct expressions of emotions, it's usually approached in a very um, suspect mode and and it's seen as a, a lack of refinement, a lack of uh, annoyance. And, uh, and I think that's really not the case at all. I mean, I, I, it is like painting a canvas with very, very strong colors in a very, very confident way. And that's how I look at those films. And uh, it is refreshing.
3: This feels like the opposite of a kitchen sink drama, which is what I... Only thought of as being a purely British cinema for the longest time. I guess when you're exposed to that, to all the Angry Young Men films, this is definitely uh, quite the opposite.
1: It is interesting. I mean, say if you look at Italian Neorealism of uh, well a bit later, but when you look at the films of like De Sica, and you, you, everybody remembers Bicycle Thieves, but. You know, he also made Miracle in Milan, and you've got this kind of, it's not one or the other. It's not, it, 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 they're not opposites. You ever have, have this kind of realism and this fantasy, uh, you know, it is, there are two facets of the same thing. And you, you saw that in a lot of Powell's latest stuff. I mean, the, the, the one about alcoholism, where the, the small, small back room, when he has that kind of uh, expressionist nightmare of the giant bottle haunting him, which is completely ridiculous. But it is using fantastic imagery to tell a fundamentally realistic story, and I think that's that's always the problem I found in the way that people approach fantastic cinema. It's like, oh, it's fantasy; it's not true; it's made up. No, it's 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 a means of addressing something. It's just a it's a route which is uh, different from catch and sink drama, and I think critics and the way that they approach and evaluated films, certainly in England were primarily responsible for the annexing of uh, the archers. and it was critics like Raymond Dergnat with books like you know, a *Mirror for England* and things like this. And, you know, it, it really did kind of show that no, this is part of uh, English culture. You know, it is goes back to Shakespeare and, and Chaucer, and uh, it's not, as you say, uh, a catching sink drama. And of course,
2: Dergnat was also a, a great fan and upholder critically of the horror film, which I think has always had the same problem. Many people look and still look at horror films as being a, an inferior form of expression, because the, horror films are very direct. By and large, they don't beat around the bush, and yet the best of them are, are addressing human dilemmas, human emotions, just as clearly as a more conventionally serious film does. And I think we're, right now, it's great rape- and um the Jordan Peele movie, Get Out, which is deeply serious in what it has to say, but it uses it through the medium of a horror movie and, and does it incredibly effectively. I think
3: this film has horror elements to it. I would say, especially the the dance sequence and and yeah, that bloody end to it. But um, you know, you, you brought up earlier, Daniel, that you first read about this film when you were reading Maitland's book and and her discussion of Suspiria. And the way that that uses dance, and then I would say even with uh, Aronofsky's uh, The Black Swan, I mean, that one goes between melodrama and horror quite a bit. And it's it's interesting that, that dance can bring us to those places of horror in these three films very effectively.
2: I actually had an interesting conversation about Black Swan with two of a friend of mine who were the directors of the Tasmanian Ballet. And the movie had just come out then, they seen it. and the first thing that one of them said was, I, I, I hate that movie. That is such an incredibly bad depiction of the world of ballet. It's just ridiculous. And I remember saying, well, no, I, I, I don't think that's true. It is not a conventionally realistic depiction of the world of ballet, but it's an incredibly vivid depiction of what it feels like to be under the kind of pressure that young dancers especially are under in the world of ballet, where everything is heightened, where where you feel like if you slip in company class in the morning and the director sees that, well, you're never going to get another role. And so you run off and, and cry in a corner for two hours. It's a pressure cooker world psychologically. And to make that apparent to people who aren't in that world, I think, you sometimes do have to go for the big effect, the big melodramatic, even horror movie-like effect to convey that that's what it's like. I love Black Swan. I think Black Swan is great.
1: I think it's a question of subject. I mean, the, the, what is the subject of the film? Is, is, it, is it about uh, a thing in the concrete world, or is it, as is the case of Black Swan, and to an extent, The Red Shoes, is the subject a state of mind, in which case expressionist techniques are called for which have a natural home in genre film particularly the horror film and i think that's the that's the really that the problem in the way that i think neither black swan or the red shoes although both films have been criticized on account of the how it differs from the real world of ballet but as madeleine said you know in in terms of depicting a psychological state you know i think both films are very effective
2: and dead a month I, I can say as somebody who works in that world, absolutely dead on the money. Because in dance particularly, but also in theater, in any kind of creative art, the stakes are so high for everybody all the time. And you feel as though if, if you make one mistake, well, it's all over for you. If one show is badly reviewed, you'll never work again. Nobody will ever commission a ballet, a play, anything from you again. And you're not entirely wrong. The stakes are extremely high frankly.
1: I think what, one related thing which we have not talked about, what I think is important is the way that in the film, we talked about the genius of Lemontov And, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's it's a part of the actual story. The fact that this is the cutting edge in terms of the world of ballet. And when you have films about great artists, you always have to have to confront that dilemma of what do you show? Do, Cause you know, you, you can't just kind of conjure up a masterpiece. And, uh, and I think this is, you know, there are a number of cases in which kind of filmmakers kind of, you know, imply or don't show something or suggest or it happens off camera. But I think that the really bold thing about it is to actually have every character talking about how great the Lermontov is and the, the dancers are. And then to actually show that on screen. Uh, I mean, it is a great piece of dance and cinema. and And you can totally believe why people within the story are so... Uh, euphoric when they actually see these productions and see um a vicky
3: dance when you brought up all that jazz earlier and that's one of those two where you can talk about how brilliant you know bob fossey is but to see those dance sequences and to and to see again how that world takes a toll on him That is one of those movies that I did not go in expecting to like that one nearly as much as I did. And that just was such a a wonderful, well, all the performances, but all of those dance sequences really just showed uh, the the craftsmanship that he had.
2: And you finally get the bottom line sequence, which takes all of the choreography that you've seen before and turns it into this state of mind sequence sequence like the ones that you see in the red shoes and it's really really effective it's very painful to watch i think
1: i think all of those sequences and all that jazz they're all commentaries and i think that's what's kind of been forgotten the fact that you know if you look historically you know even if you look at kind of a greek chorus you know it is there traditionally to comment and and, and you know they are in an outer space and i think it's only later we've got this kind of uh, uh, almost disjointed structure uh, of kind of uh, action musical or dance sequence or something like this. Whereas in the case of all that jazz, I mean, you don't notice it's seamless the way it slides in and out of that, you know, and I mean, he even says that it's a, it's a hallucination, hospital hallucination, the whole, you know, it's a part of the story, the fact that, you know, he's lost the distinction between those two parts. But of course that is the essence of, uh, his work and that you could say that he lost that long time ago and that that blurring is the is the basis for his genius as a choreographer as is implied in the the uh, erotica sequence the idea that you know this this, this coder this heavily sexualized uh, coda is, is rooted in his own attitude towards relationships
2: you know it's also interesting because there are two distinct kinds of musical or dance film and all that jazz and the red shoes are the same kind. One kind is the kind I think that people who say they hate musicals really, really dislike. And it's the musicals where the musical interludes are just there. It's as though you were seeing a stage production where suddenly the you know the talking stops and the singing or the dancing begins. But both of these are integrated films. Both and as is Black Swan, because they're about people who are that kind of artist, And so dance is an integral part of their lives. And therefore, it's integrated in, in the film. You never stop in the red shoes for the musical number. It's completely part of what they're doing. I think that for some people, that's a little bit easier to watch because artificial, and I mean that in a good way, though it may be, it still makes a certain amount of sense because of the context within which it's taking place, rather than, let's say, a musical like Oklahoma. Those dance numbers are completely artificial in that they are not, by and large, coming out of the things that people are doing in their, quote-unquote, real lives in the film.
1: And that's also very true of Alan Parker's fame.
2: Absolutely. It's also a great, great
3: musical. Yeah, and that's another one that shows all that hard work that goes into just uh, to do those performances and really shows those raw emotions.
1: It's an incredibly brutal film as well. I mean, it's interesting how I think, uh, I I mean, I'm of a generation, certainly, which, you know, it was the TV show of fame kind of got the exposure, and it wasn't so much later I saw the original. And, you know, when he did it, it's it's quite a tough film in many ways.
2: Yeah, it is, and it's an accurately tough film. I think the other big dance film that that people often talk about as being a very accurate fiction of that world is, is The Turning Point. And frankly, Turning Point works much less well for me because I don't think that you ever truly get immersed in the dance portions of it in the way that you do in the real life drama of it, which is also very soap opera-ish, I think, although it does have a couple of fabulous lines in it and it does have some nice dance sequences, but they're not absorbing in the way the sequences in The Red Shoes are, for example, or I think the way the sequences in Black Swan are. They don't have the intensity that really I think can grab even people who don't deeply love that particular art form.
1: I always think I mean there is always this, this slightly awkward situation with, with dance on film because on the one hand you I think you've got two well you got one major trap to avoid and that is that, you know, watching a film of a dance is never going to be as good as watching a dance in real life. Therefore you've kind of got to go through that somehow and I think both Black Swan and and the Red Shoes do that, I mean, they are incredibly, uh, and it's an easy word to say, cinematic, but the way in which they use all that kind of uh, almost kind of visual metaphors like in the case of uh, the Red Shoes, those kind of fades and dissolves between the, you know, those kind of, those those flowers and the dancers, and then you actually have, you know, the the climax of Black Swan, and there's metamorphosis, which you know, it's you know you can only do that in cinema, and I think that's for me, what uh, not only does it justify those films, but it you know it, it really it's what what you can do in cinema what you can't do on stage, and I think that's where both films come into their own.
2: I also think that one of the hard things about dance on film is that in when you see a dance performance in real life, it's like seeing a trapeze performance. There's there's an element of danger to it because you are seeing real bodies in real space in real time doing things that are not only extraordinary, but are also dangerous. And it's it's kind of a cheap idea to say that people go to the circus for the, for the chance of seeing somebody fall, because I don't think that most people are, are sitting there actively thinking, wow, it would be amazing to see that trapeze, the, the, the catch artist miss the catch. And yet, there is a sense of danger to any real performance that I think is part of the excitement of it. I mean, when you, when you see a Broadway play, it, it's just amazing to see everybody get through it from beginning to end without ever flubbing a line or bumping into a table or dropping a glass. And that's a really cheap way of, of of looking at it. And yet I think it is part of the appeal of it. It's the ever-present danger that something might go wrong.
1: Well, which is a central plot point to Showgirls, uh, when the whole film is predicated on the possibility that something might happen by accident or on purpose.
3: See, it all goes back to Showgirls.
1: Everything goes back to Showgirls.
2: (laughs) Showgirls, again, for all its Ken Russell-like wild taste, shall we say,
3: is a very potent film. Oh, yeah, definitely. And it's, it's made by somebody I would consider to be a master filmmaker. I would say also that pretty much all the films that we've talked about on this episode have been crafted by master filmmakers. I would say Fosse is up there, and definitely Aronofsky, you know, and of course Powell and Pressburger. But with with both the Black Swan and the Red Shoes, I mean, I was fortunate enough to see the Black Swan in a theater, but even with the Red Shoes, just watching that on television, watching a, a, a DVD of it, I felt different after seeing it than i did uh before i saw it you know it left such an impression i can only imagine that moment that i experienced with black swan where you kind of come stumbling out of the movie theater back into the noonday sun you know rubbing your eyes and just like what did i just experience i felt like i'd almost been hypnotized by that film And that, to me, is definitely the mark of a filmmaker who knows their craft and is able to manipulate you that much. I had a very strange experience watching Black Swan for the first time
1: because I was in a largely empty cinema, but there was a lady behind me with a ginormous bucket of popcorn and she was kind of regularly eating the way through. But in the scene with Mila Kunis, between Natalie Portman's legs, she sort of, slowed down and went quiet and then she started to eat but it was in perfect synchrony her munching on the pop the oh munching God. on screen and 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 I just it really I've never been able to watch that film objectively because I just can't get that sound not the image but the sound detached from that image so it's really difficult for me to even think about Black Swan without just this this embarrassed woman trying not to draw attention to eating but making it ten times worse
2: Yep. Hard to top that. Even my Michael Powell story will not top that. So, But I do have one. Back in the 80s, uh, a friend of mine whom I knew through my time at City Ballet was was trying to put together a production of The Red Shoes for Broadway. And there was a backers audition and Michael Powell was coming to it. Um I forget who else, but Michael Powell and Ricky Weiss, who was the choreographer I knew, were both going to be there trying to drum up money for this production. And this was not long after I had written an article called um, The Ambiguities of Seeing and Knowing in Michael Powell's Keeping Tom," that had been published in some little academic magazine. And uh, so Ricky said, oh, why don't you give me a copy of that and I'll give it to Michael Powell. Maybe he would like to read it. So when I saw him at the back of the audition, I was introduced to him as the person who had written this, this piece about keeping and Tom. And he, said, he looked at me and said very graciously, you know, dear, when we made that, we really were not thinking all those things. But you saw
3: them, so they must be there. That seems like what most filmmakers could say to most people that write about their films.
2: <laughs> most filmmakers would not be quite as gracious, I think, as Michael
3: Powell that's true yeah Uh, i'm sure a lot of filmmakers would probably just say yeah you're you totally miss the point or you're full of shit
1: did you believe him because i mean it is a kind of it's like a self-deprecating thing to say but at the same time and that film is so sophisticated particularly at that time when it was made i mean now it's quite common place place to have all those kind of reflexive games but it is so much ingrained into the structure of that film well
2: you didn't read this piece that i did i think Perhaps he was being gracious about some of those things. But no, absolutely. It's an incredibly sophisticated and manipulative film. And clearly, he knew what he was doing. But um, but I went to the real academic reading that uh, might well have gone places that he was not thinking. But that I think were offshoots of the things that he was thinking consciously. Because, you know, when you create something, you're not always thinking consciously every moment of the time you're creating it. But there are things that you know you want to do but then I think that there are other things that you do at in the spur of the moment that are outgrowth of the things that you thought about consciously and that you perhaps see them later when you look at at it but didn't think in the moment
1: a, a related story I mean uh, I, uh, my, I I didn't I don't have a background an academic background in film but I did study psychology and then when we were having the kind of the that the, the kind of the, the degrees given out, the ceremony at the end, by complete coincidence, the person giving out the the certificates was Richard Gregory. And Richard Gregory had written a book called Iron Brain. And I knew through Polanski's autobiography that, you know, he didn't care about film theory. He and he thought psychoanalysis was bullshit, blah blah blah, blah But he said he did like this book, Iron Brain, uh, or Richard Gregory be, in particular, because it was very kind of nuts and bolts about perception and cognition and uh so when it came to actually working on the repulsion uh yeah the repulsion dvd about 10 15 years ago i got in touch with richard gregory and uh and and he told me something very interesting he said that for him polanski was one of the best uh psychologists he'd ever met but he said his psychology was intuitive uh, and, and whereas like his psychology, R- Richard Gregory's psychology, was as a scientist, was approaching it conceptually, whereas when he was working with Polanski, and they did briefly work on a, a horror film which was supposed to be on 3D, uh, he said that the way in which Polanski approached optical illusion as a means of uh, eliciting an emotional response was was brilliant uh, it was just in an intuitive approach and it was as brilliant as any kind of psychologist had encountered so i think there is this element of kind of language and how how ideas are kind of put into words on paper you know it, it's almost it is almost like a different language uh, but I think the thoughts of a filmmaker, and it's always this this kind of anecdote, it's a standard line, whether it's Kurosawa or or, or whoever, kind of downplaying and, and suggesting that the critic overthinks things. But at the same time I think there is just a different is a different way of thinking, uh, a visual way of thinking. You know, the, the brilliance of the Red Shoes for me, it is it's visual expression of these ideas. In many ways I actually prefer it to a lot of Eisenstein's later stuff, because I think the, the ideas of Eisenstein in films like Ivan the Terrible, which I love dearly, but the film is so kind of orchestrated to fit specific ideas about montage, whereas it's much more organic, equally sophisticated than The Red Shoes, but it's much more organic and flowing. And, uh, you know, as, as, a, as a, a film goer, I, I much prefer it, and it feels less mannered. And, uh, you know, and it is... You know, it is exceptional.
3: All right, we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show.
0: There's an intimacy involved in playing existence is beyond description. In the not-too-distant future, Allegra Geller has created the ultimate escape. The possibilities are so great. This is amazing. A parallel universe called existence. Now I'm warning you, it's going to be a wild ride. It taps into your deepest emotions. You're the power source. Your body, your nervous system, your energy. It unleashes your wildest urges. I can't help myself. are no, you saying? I've got a serious urge to kill someone here. Do it. It's just a game. But it's the first genuine threat to reality. It's a lot more fun when it starts feeling realer than real. And someone wants it stopped at all costs. We're worth a lot of money. Five million dollars for your dead body. Step into my office. I like where we need help. The only way I can tell if everything's okay is to play existence with somebody friendly. Are you friendly? Play with me. Hold oh on. What happened? Just come back here with us. I think we're still inside the game.
3: You're stuck now, aren't you? That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of David Cronenberg's Existence. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Maitland and Daniel. So, Maitland, what has been keeping you out of the bars lately?
2: Well, I'm mostly actually working on promoting the series of vintage gay adult novels that I've been republishing, one of which actually has some relevance to Red Shoes because it takes place in a circus. And it's, it's about actually a lot of the same things, about the conflict between performance and life. So I recommend that one particularly. It's called Three Ring Circus, and you can get that and the other books on Amazon.
3: Was there a recent DVD release with a commentary from you?
2: Yes, there is a a new release of Chenebrae with my commentary, which people have been saying is quite good. Although, quite honestly, when I was doing it, I felt as though maybe I just felt as though I've talked and written about Argento so much that I feel as though I have nothing new to say. But people are saying they came out well. so. Yes, Tenebrae.
3: Yeah, I've actually gotten people who have tweeted at me saying, oh, I listened to uh, your regular co-host Maitland McDonough's uh, commentary on Tenebrae, and it's fantastic. So you're, you're getting praise all over f- the place for it. Well, I'm delighted to hear that. And Daniel, what projects are you working on these days?
1: I've just finished uh, working with the Pompidou Center on a retrospective of Borovczyk. That finished a few weeks ago. We also published a book on Borovchik, which is bilingual in French and English, which uh, you can get through the Friends of Valerian Borowczyk website. Uh, also, we worked on uh, the Story of Sin, object's only Polish feature, which has restored copies of Borowczyk's Polish shorts, and that's released by Arrow both in the UK and the US. And also, it, it's all come out at once. Uh, there was the Blue Notes by Andrzej Zawarski, uh, which the work was done five years ago, uh, but it's only just appeared. And uh, and interestingly, that does have a connection with The Red Shoes because, of course, Jaworski was faced with a similar problem, uh, and that was the film is about Chopin. So what do you do? Do you get an actor to play Chopin? Uh, or in his case, he did what Powell did, and is to find who was at that time Poland's best uh, pianist, uh, uh, Janusz Oleniczek, and made him look like and so you don't have those kind of cutaways between close-ups of the hands and the actor. So, you know, it is interesting how, how even the red shoes sort of echoes in work when you don't expect it. A common line between all of these people, and I think it is interesting you you I mean you bring that up, I mean, because there were some critics in the UK who were talking about, I think it was Mark Komodo was actually saying that the end of Black Swan in many ways reminded him of The Beast. And I think also this idea of Powell and Pressburger of looking for this kind of, you know, composed film as a kind of unison of photography, music, dance, and all these other different kind of elements. I mean, that's very true of Borowczyk, somebody who comes from a painting background and whose uh, primary kind of inspiration is music and looking for a kind of a synthesis. And someone also interested in the fairy tale, not to mention the erotic.
3: Yeah, that it's interesting that... uh that one is on Netflix, and I'm always curious if just somebody stumbles upon that, what the hell they're going to think.
2: Well, well I it think seems to to, if somebody stumbled across it, would think it they'd be horrified, frankly.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it seems to be cropping up a lot on Twitter
1: recently uh, because of the release of The Beauty and the Beast, uh, and people sort of saying, I preferred that version, and then, oh, really? What's that like? And then, oh, have a look on Netflix. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine the response. So.
3: And, of course, I'm sitting here when you mentioned Cocteau earlier, uh, uh, Maitland. He's been front of mind lately because of the Beauty and the Beast release, and I'm just like, I wonder what people would think of that one compared to this uh, uh, CGI monstrosity.
2: Yeah, I think everybody needs to go back and see the Cocteau. I mean, well, there, it's there was a glorious doll. Oh, yeah.
1: Did it ever get released in the States? There was uh, Christoph Gons, the... the- the StarFX journalist who was a big champion of Argento back in the 80s, but of course he went on to make films and made a remake of the Beauty and the Beast the Cocteau one and drawing on that tradition. I mean, that came out in France I think, what, a few years ago, but I'm not with Lea Sedu and Vincent Cassel. but I don't know, did that get distributed in the US?
2: I don't think it did, because it's something I would have gone to see immediately. And if it didn't <laughs> open in New York, I can't imagine where it would have opened. It
1: is interesting, this kind of sanitized, official Disney version, and then these kind of, uh, you know, the consigning, like, Cocteau and the, the, the Guns film is, is something, you know, not the authentic thing. I think that's the depressing element. I mean, just a few weeks ago, I was in Brussels for, uh, for the Offscreen Festival uh, interviewing Juraj Hertz, the Slovak director, on stage, after a screening of his version of Beauty and the Beast. And I think I mean, that film is incredible, because, of course, the beast in that film is nothing like the beast in either the Cocteau or the Disney version. You know, it's, it's, it's got like a, you know, a, a kind of almost like a bird-like and talons, and, you know, and it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting to actually revisit that film after so many years at exactly the same time this kind of uh, uh, Disney version's coming out because it really is uh, quite depressing, the lack of imagination,
3: given the possibilities that story presents.
2: Well, not at Disney if it doesn't present those possibilities.
3: Well, thank you guys so much for coming on. This has been a real pleasure talking about The Red Shoes with you. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where folks can find out more about today's episode. you also find links over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show and over to our Patreon where you can make a donation to the show if you want. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. So every donation and every rating we get helps The Projection Booth take over the world.